Hello, and welcome back to the Socially Distanced Podcast. My name is Al Manorino. I'm the managing editor of thepopbreak.com. With me, as always, every week uh, on command is the editor-in-chief of thepopbreak.com, Mr. Bill Bodkin. Bill, what's up? Hey, man. Uh, thanks for having me. I mean, not like it's not my site or podcast, but uh, I'm very excited for this episode. I'm really excited. I'm a, like, I'm not a comic book guy by uh, by trade, but... I think that might have changed today. Yes, uh, this is uh, weird because we've been doing a like back to back to back review series. We did the Mandalorian, WandaVision, and Falcon and Winter Soldier. Basically, we're like sponsored by Disney Plus, but don't get any of the financial backing from them. <laughs> I think I might be changing my last name to Iger soon. So <laughs> perfect, perfect. Yeah. But we have uh, an awesome special guest with us this week. He is the writer of Infidel, the Image comic series, and a brand new. Image comic series as well called The Good Asian. He's also written on shows such as Cloak and Dagger. So we're gonna we're gonna hear a very interesting tale of of, of a career. Uh, former DC Vertigo editor and current amazing writer Pornsack Pichette showed. Yeah, Pornsack. Thank you. Welcome so much. to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. It's been uh, be- before this we were we were catching up because it's been about two years since I've seen you, Al. Two years, yeah, and that that kind of goes right into like our first. Uh, kind of question was like I had the pleasure of meeting you in 2018 at San Diego Comic-Con we were uh, talking about your first book Infidel Um, you know just talk talk about just Infidel in general for people who haven't heard of it or haven't checked it out yet and what what was (laughs) like Bill and what was the reception for that first series your your kind of your first foray into the into the comic book world as a writer Um, and you know maybe what surprised you most about that experience um, I think, you know, uh, well, for anyone who doesn't know anything like Bill about, <laughs> about the book, yeah. um, Infidel was about a Pakistani American Muslim woman and her multiracial neighbors who, uh, who live in an apartment building that are haunted by what I casually call racist ghosts or these entities that feed off xenophobia. And, um, and so it was a, it was using sort of the haunted house, you know, genre to talk about xenophobia, to talk about racism. And, you know, at 2018, it, it kind of, it, it, it seemed to sort of catch people's attention and seemed to be resonant with things that were happening in the country at the time. And so, and so yeah, that book was five issues. It was published through Image. Uh, I worked on, I wrote it with uh, my artist, um, Aaron Campbell, my the colorist and editor, Jose Villarubia, and um, letter uh, designer and production artist, uh, Jeff Powell, and it was a great experience. It was, you know, um, I, I, I think, you know, I think the thing that surprised me the most about it was just how warmly received it was. You know, people really dug it. People really seemed to like it. It was a book that, you know, it, it was a book that I had that I just, the only thing I wanted to do was to like not lose my shirt publishing it. That was like my biggest goal. And uh, it, it's worked out really well. Like, you know, we've gotten through, uh, three printings of the trade and and going into more and in, in less than like two years um it's been optioned for a movie by um sony pictures and tristar columbia with honey abu Assad attached to direct uh we just got a new slate of writers on it uh sony just um re-optioned it for a period of 18 months and yeah no it uh it 
it, it kind of opened doors for me to do more comics. Uh, I've always loved working. I started off as a, a comic book editor, as you mentioned, and, you know, I, I've always wanted to write, but, you know, it, it can be an expensive game. And so I thought that, like, I would have one book and, you know, if, if, if I never had the opportunity again, I'd be, you know, I'm glad that this was the one book to do it. And that the success of that book opened up a lot of doors and, uh, you know, a lot of people now sort of invite me to kind of sort of write for them. And now the problem is just managing and juggling my time. It's, so, it's uh, a good so, yeah. problem. It's a good, a good problem. problem. <laughs> great, great problem to have. Great problem to have. Yeah. And, as, and, you know, as an avid comic reader, you find that, you know, some of the, the writers, some of the newer writers that you get into often when they have a hit like Infidel, they kind of like stick to that genre. Like I, I wrote an amazing horror book. I'm going to just keep you know, diving into and seeing more of those horror stories. But with your latest book, The Good Asian, we're in like a noir 30s or 40s noir style book. Yeah. Like talk to us about like, I guess, not getting pigeonholed into just writing horror. I, I think for me, honestly, it was, you know, a, a lot of it, a lot of it was like lack of ideas to a certain point. It, it was, it, it was, you know, I, I think a part, part of it for me was I really put everything I had into sort of in, into Infidel. And so I actually do have one other idea for, for a horror series, but every book I do, I do, I try to have it, you know, not just sort of be personal for me, but like have, I'm like kind of working through something as I'm sort of writing the books. That was the case with Infidel. That's the case with the good Asian. And so I need to be at a certain place sort of like through that process in order to kind of write, write the book um it all kind of you know it, it they're always about something that i personally am you know uh that i care a lot about i'm kind of in the process of sort of thinking my way through and then i kind of just filter it through genre and so um you know the the truth of the matter was coming off of infidel you know while it while it was easy to you know to take those horror tools and bring it to other things and do other things with them to come up with a whole new sort of horror concept i just felt like I, you know, I put everything I had into sort of Infidel and I kind of needed some time to kind of like replenish and recharge and, and, and do that, which is not to say like, I, you know, I, I hope to do, uh, to do more horror stuff in comics sooner as opposed to later, but like the idea of doing like a five to six issue sort of mini series, you know, it was, I just felt it, there would have been sort of diminishing returns on, on that. And so that's why, and I kind of knew, you know, I kind of knew when I wrapped Infidel that the Good Asian was going to be my next was going to be my next project. I think part of it too is that I, you know, being a comic book editor, I, there's so many different types of stories and genres and artists that I love, and so part of it is you know getting a chance to work on all that in sort of like that finite amount of time that we have in our lives and and trying to do that because the other thing too is like you know I'm balance I'm trying to balance anyway sort of a TV writing career on the side, and so I don't have the luxury of just just writing comics and trying to do everything sort of all at once. So I have to kind of pick and choose a little bit. So I think that's one of the reasons why like I tr like the goal is to have the books be sort of drastically different from, from one another. I'm going to uh, just take it back for one second because I do, yeah. do want to get into the TV aspect of it, but sure. um, you know, you were an editor at DC Vertigo yeah. before releasing Infidel uh, for those unfamiliar, AKA me with <laughs> what a comic book editor does. Can you discuss what that work entails and some of the titles you worked on? Uh, during yeah. That? 
so right. So as a comic book editor, I worked on this a book by Jeff Lemire called Sweet Tooth, which is actually being adapted now uh, to a show on Hulu. Like uh, George is, Clooney, right? Or something like that? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, some yeah, of them. Yeah, I knew Robert it was Downey one Jr. of them. One, so of one of those guys. It's all in the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. One of those like not successful, not talented, <laughs> right. not rich right. dudes. Yeah. Right. Very cottage industry. Very. <laughs> yeah, very yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so Sweet Tooth was one. There was um, Gabriel Bond, Fabio Moon's uh, Day Tripper was another book I worked on. Two, I worked two on book- great talents, by the way. Yeah, they're oh they're God. fantastic. They're so fantastic. Uh, Gabriel Ba, you you would know his work because he was one of the co-creators of the Umbrella Academy, which yes. is now a, a yeah. success, successful Netflix show. Um, uh, Josh Dysart and Albert Albert Panicelli's Unknown Soldier. Uh, Josh would go on to be part of like sort of the the Valiant reboot of Harbinger, mm-hmm. which is now sort of the uh, the basis of sort of the movie, from what I hear. Um, Mike Carey and Peter Gross's uh, The Unwritten and Mike and, Mike and Peter, you know, would go on to, well, that, they, that was coming off of their run on Lucifer, which was, which served as the inspiration for the, for the television show. Um, what, uh, you know, and I worked on, I got to work on some perennials, Hellblazer and a little bit on Sandman, a little bit on Swamp Thing. Uh, I've worked with Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley on We Three and Darren Aronofsky and Kent Williams on The Fountain and Dave Gibbons on the originals. And so I got the, the time at Vertigo was like one of the most wonderful times of my life where I just got to work with some of the best in the industry. And, and as for what a comic book editor does, you know, I, it, you're, it's a little bit of a jack of all trades. You are giving script notes, you are helping develop the script with the, the, the pitch with the writer, you're giving script notes, you're giving art notes, you're the production coordinator, trying to coordinate with sort of all the people. I mean, you're kind of there, you're there to kind of make sure that the, the book is, that everyone is, is really making the same book and, and, and putting in their, their best work. So it, the idea is you're kind of just a friend to the entire creative team and doing everything that you can to sort of bring, bring out their best, their you, best material. As limited my comic book knowledge, I am. Uh, you mentioned some major heavyweight names, Grant Morrison. <laughs> you mentioned Darren Aronofsky, creator of one of yeah. my favorite movies of all time, The Wrestler. Yeah. Um, yeah. The go-to Aronofsky movie. <laughs> I love that's your <laughs> go-to. Like, <laughs> it's the best. It's a great movie. movie. It's like if I wrote a movie about wrestling New Jersey and with an 80s metal soundtrack, it's the wrestler (laughs) in New Jersey. It's me. Um, But like, how is it like, because to me, that would seem a little daunting. You're just like, hey, what's up, guys? Me points back. Just so Graham Morrison been doing this forever. You know, Aaron Oski, a couple Oscar nominations to your name. How you doing? Uh, I'm just going to tell you how we're going to all put this together, guys. Like, how is it being like kind of like, like the producer, the, the 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 head coach, the like kind of the nerve center, the hub for a comic book like that, especially when you're dealing with a lot of people who've uh, been around the block a few times. Well, well, I, one of the things I will say on, on those particular books, you know, working with Dave and Darren and and um, and Grant, like I was sort of the associate assistant editor in that position, and Karen Berger, head of Vertigo, she was kind of the, yeah. the quarterback. So in that particular case, a lot of it is. Uh, you know, a lot of it was more, you know, might be more like line producing, you mm-hmm, know, okay. it's, you know, coordinating and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So in those particular books, I would be, I would work very closely with the artists because they're the kind of ones with the day to day, you know, Karen was usually the ones with the writers. And then I would kind of like sort of chime in with sort of the, you know, little bits here and there, but they all kind of depend on the projects. Like, 
you know, for something like the fountain, Darren had, Darren had a, that, that I love that project. And I love that book because he, the way the fountain worked was, I, I want to say he had written a script for 30 to $40 million movie. And then Warner brothers was just like, we're not making it. And so he, and then in the process, he changed that budget. So it became a $5 million movie, but the script, that 30 to $40 million script was what the graphic novel was based on. And so That's it cool. is like this uncompromised sort of version of that, of that story. And so, and it was kind of completely adapted by the artist who's now like a fine arts painter, Kent Williams. And so, so a lot of that book was just, you know, working with Kent to sort of adapt it and like, you know, helping sort of make it happen. So, you know, so, so for those, you know, for the originals, which was the book I worked on with Dave Gibbons, since he's the artist, I was my, you know, I had steady contact with him on all that and steady contact with Frank Whiteley on, on We Three. So when it comes to those sort of big talents, like Karen was definitely sort of the quarterback sort of pushing it through. And I was kind of there to just make, you know, to kind of hold the, holding the ship together and making sure everything sort of, sort of hit. But the great thing about working with Karen that I loved is that being her assistant, being her associate, um, you know, there's so much learning by doing. So what you really end up doing is you end up editing the book and you give her your notes. I used to say that the difference between for me being an associate editor in a book and an editor was it was the exact same job. I just got two hours less sleep a night. And the reason for that was because yeah. I would, you know, when I was working for her, my job was to give her options. And I'm like, this is what I think. And she would be like, I agree with that. I don't agree with that. We're going to do this. And, but, and when I was an editor for a book, I did the exact same thing, but now it was my job to pick what we did and what we didn't do. And so there was always that worry of like, oh, did I make the book thing worse and I make it better? I don't really know kind of thing. But it was a great thing working with Karen though, was that like, I could offer my opinion. And a lot of times that stuff made it into the final product. And, and, but it was her call at the end of the day to make the stressful calls of, we are gonna do that, we're not gonna do that and, and all that. That's, I mean, that's amazing work. I mean working under like a, a living legend like Karen yeah. has, has got to be insane. But also talking is like Bill said, like just being, you know, emailing or texting or whatever, however you communicated with someone like Dave Gibbons, who yeah. obviously Watchmen artist, but has done some of my favorite comic work for decades. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, mean, I think most recently, something I love him, he did the Sin uh, Sinister Corpse War, which was yeah, yeah. insane, so good. Um, yeah. And, and maybe the greatest Superman story of all time for the man who has everything. Oh, right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love. He's just, he's so good. He's just, and the nicest guy too. Yeah. The absolute nicest guy. Yeah. And someone like Quietly too. Like Quietly yeah. is, is, I mean, now he's going to, finally people are going to see a huge adaptation yeah. of his with uh, him and Mark Muller's uh, uh, Jupiter's Legacy. Uh, yeah. Netflix series. So that's great. I mean, it's cool that these artists are, you know, writers and artists are seeing, a lot of their creations come to life now with all these yeah. different adaptations and hopefully we get the the infidel or or fingers crossed the the good asian series would be yeah yeah would, i would definitely love that I, I certainly have a vested interest in that happening yeah you really do <laughs> i guess it's like it's kind of great it's kind of wild that like you're with everyone you talked about when i asked you that question you're just like you might know them from they're going to be they're either a part of something that's been adapted to the big screen or, or the or streaming platform or is going to be like, how has that changed the game in so many ways? This was not on the question list now. Sorry. Okay. Uh, that's okay. I like it. How is, how has this changed the game for a lot of comic book writers, like or comic book editor, people in the comic book world, where it's all of a sudden now you guys are like this fertile crescent of, of content that so many platforms and channels now go to 
to like give us give us the goods. I I I hope that it's offering, you know, I hope that it's offering creators more um, more opportunities and and leeway. I mean, you know, I think it's definitely made it so that creators are a lot more cognizant about owning the rights to their work, which I think is great. Yeah. You know, I I think especially you know comic book artists where they you know they're the lifeblood of the industry. They can only work at one book at a time, unlike unlike a writer. And so the thing that you know from these big media adaptations, I think for a lot of them, you know, um, it, it, it is sort of a, it, it, it just takes so much, you know, drawing a comic is a day in day out, kind of like blue collar, kind of blue collar. You have to have a blue collar mentality to sort of do it. So to have sort of like a big windfall like that, like the Miller World books, like whether or not they come to screen or not, though, those artists made a great deal of, you know, a good, a good side piece of cash kind of doing it. And it's given them more options in, in, in their career, you know, so that they can work on other projects or, you know, start writing their own things. And I think everyone working one of those books, you know, has sort of, you know, the, the things have opened up things, things have opened up and made life hopefully a little bit easier. So I think that's sort of the main, the main thing. I think because of that, you're seeing people like, you know, Rick Remender, who's got, you know, who's, who's now like co-show, he was co-show ring Deadly Class, you know, Jason Aaron co-wrote the, uh, him and, him and uh, Latour co-wrote the script to the Southern Bastards. Thanks. So I think you see a lot of people who are kind of respecting the art form a little bit and allowing, you know, comic book people to kind of dabble in waters where they're, they are paid sort of a little bit better for, for their work. And I also think it's nice, you know, to, for, for certain comic book creators to, to have their work sort of appreciated in, in, that, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you briefly mentioned it, but like talk a little bit about image and like the, the whole creator owned model that was set up in the, in the 90s with, you know, with Todd and Eric and everyone like that. And now I know um, Kirkman is big involved in it with, with Skybound and everything like that. But yeah. for, those, for those who may have just read some of the articles about you know, Brubaker talking about like how he doesn't really receive anything yeah. for creating the Winter Soldier. Talk a bit, a little bit about creator-owned comics like Image. Well, so from what I, my understanding of sort of comics history, Image was a place was, they were at the time the seven hottest artists at Marvel working all their sort of top books. And they decided to sort of change the game and say like, listen, we're tired. And these were guys, this is back in the day where Jim Lee was working on X-Men and was sold a million copies. And Todd McFarlane's work on Spider-Man and it sold a million copies. And there was just like, you know, why are we, you know, and I feel like you're seeing this a little bit now, you know, where people are just like, why am I, you know, toiling for the man working sort of a nine to five when I can, you know, create something and own the equity in it and all that kind of stuff. And they decided that back in the nineties and they created their own, you know, they created their own properties and, you know, and, and some did better than others, but the, it, it, it did sort of change it changed the landscape of comics. And so one of the things that eventually happened was, you know, it became a place where um, creators own the rights to every, everything that, you know, to things that they created and the way image works is you pay them sort of a fee, um, you know, to publish your stuff, but you own it. And at the end of the day, you make a comic and you give them your, your finished comic and they kind of publish it under their banner. And they have a lot of say in the marketing. They definitely have a lot of say on like what gets published and what doesn't, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I think a lot about like, I don't, I don't, I think books like Infidel and Good Asian could have gotten published in other, other publishers. I, I, I worry some, I, I'm not worried, but like, I don't know if it would be the exact same books. Like my particular books, they are political in nature. They, 
involve looking at subject matter that can kind of be seen as controversial depending on your vantage point. And so, and part of my process is, is that I try to be sort of very honest and sort of like what my take on the take on uh, on the world is and sort of society is. And occasionally Infidel was one of them where, you know, just because of the lead time on publishing these things, you know, I wanted to talk about what racism looked like in New York, you know, before Trump won the you know, Trump won the election, you know, and so if that had gone through a publisher, that may you know, that I could see the conversations and be like, can, maybe we should set this in Kansas or all that sort of stuff, just because you know, it, but all that kind of came from like my pers- living in New York and my perspective, and like I wanted to talk about racism in liberal communities and what that looked like and how we weren't as progressive as 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 we thought, and it, it was a decision that. Uh, you know, I was given the freedom to make a book around that as opposed to having to convince a bunch of other people. It's like, oh, you know, maybe the world is a little bit more racist than you think and all and, and all that kind of stuff. And so like, it, it was a place where, I'm not gonna say I, the book couldn't happen in any other place, but it, 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 it probably, the, the process wouldn't have been, for lack of a better term, as pure as it was when, you know, working yeah. through image. Yeah, and the good Asian is continuing that as well. Um, yeah. Especially during yeah. this time in america right now yeah with with, with, with the stop asian hate you know there's you know the acts of violence all over the country and your book is talking about some of the dark dark history of the you know how asian americans were treated during you know the early parts of of america and it's it's great that there is a book that is talking about this because you don't see this in you know maybe in the big two at this yeah Yeah. And, and, and again, and this is another thing where I have to give my publisher image, like all the credit in the world. Like it, it's funny. I, I, I quarantine at like two different places because like I'm bubbling with my, I'm bubbling with my family and all that kind of stuff. So the, the short of it is like, I, there, I go through periods where I have to like, I come back to my apartment and catch up on the mail. And um, I, I got this email, like right when we, uh, you know, when solicitations dropped for the book and when previews kind of came out and my comic book shop, like emailed me, um, and was just like, oh my God, you got the front of the catalog. And I was like, yeah, isn't that cool? Because Image is like a big publisher and all that sort of stuff. And, but it wasn't until like months later, like very recently that I kind of came home and like was catching up on my mail. And I saw like, they sent me the previews catalog and it's the very first book in previews. Like it's the very first book that you see. Awesome. And, and, you know, and, and this was before they made this decision before there were any hashtags, before there were any GoFundMe's. Like they, the way that they've just, been sort of like champions of the book from go and there are so many people at that place who just love the book and have just taken that extra like you know that that extra 10 to 20 percent just to make sure people hear about it to make sure people know about it and and i really appreciate that and again that's not to slight any of the other companies but i think part of a place like image you know built the way that they are it gives them a little bit more freedom to say like hey this this book you know we want to sort of push this you know a, a little bit harder than i you know, and, and I feel like there's a little less, you know, I have to convince the people in the corner offices that this is okay kind of kind of thing. So they've been amazing to sort of work with through through this process. And and yeah, and it's been a, you know, it, it when I came up with a pitch, certainly when, you know, it, it's funny, like this, the impetus of this book, the timeliness that I thought this book was going to have was I, I probably should take the time. So the 
the book is is a genre that I'm calling we're calling Chinatown noir. It's a 1936 detective mystery featuring the first generation of Americans who grew up underneath an immigration ban of their own people, and that was the Chinese. So it's very much about the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Chinese Americans in the 1930 who kind of came of age with that was the uh, immigration ban with the Chinese with the their fellow Chinese was the only thing they knew and. The timeliness I thought the book was going to have was for me when I conceived of it and was pitching it was, you know, we were coming, you know, there was a Muslim ban. There was, there, you know, we were banning immigrants coming to this country. And what I thought was interesting, it was like, if we looked in our past, we could see what it was like when an entire generation, when that was the only thing that they knew. And they, that's how they came of age with an immigration ban of their kind. And so to me, it felt like, you know, because of the weird way the world is working, speculative fictions were set in the past. And that I thought was going to be the timeliness of the book. And so for the book to get timely in a way I never imagined, you know, as I was working on the book for this watch anti-Asian hate crime sort of like, you know, escalate and skyrocket. And so, so, so much so that, you know, I think the very first piece of national news hit around the, the same week the book was sort of announced, you know, and, and that was something I just never expected sort of in a million years. And so it's, you know, and it's, it, it, it it's one of those things that I don't have like sort of the best way to talk about it. I don't really sort of know what to say about it, but the only thing that the, the, the place where I've kind of landed is, you know, part of what the book is about is about Asian American history that we have we've no longer acknowledged and we've kind of collectively forgot. And what's happening now, there is a context throughout history for it. And hopefully the book, you know, while not directly about it, at least shows the history that that all this stuff is happening. Uh, it, 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 you know, the, the history that has led up to this particular moment. You, you know what, it parall- it, not apples to apples, but it parallels to me because you know, I, I love history when I was in, in college mm-hmm. and, I, and, and, and when I was in school is you hear about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. But we don't delve any further, but we don't have uh, pictures of it. We don't have it like right. when I say pictures of it, it reminds me of when uh, I watched Watchmen on HBO. Mm, yeah. yeah. The, that first episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, the bombing. Yeah. And none of us. I mean, a lot of us sat there with our jaws on the floor because right. we're like, we can't believe it almost seemed like it wasn't real. Yeah. How could this happen? So when I'm reading the first, you know, I'm reading about Angel Island, I'm reading about the first, you know, I'm reading about all the stuff that's happening. I never knew any of this. And so it's just like, it's, it's like opening your eyes. And one thing you talk about in this is about, you have a historian you're working with and you actually said in yeah. the, the notes of the first, at the end of the first issue, you wanted people to write to you like an old school letter to the editor. For yeah. Which I thought was really cool um, about forgotten American, Asian American, and American history. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Is that for you? Why is that important to you to do that? To be so, like to, to do something like that? Is it for, for me. your books, or is it because you want to use this as a kind of like? A, like an open like classroom type feel for everyone yeah yeah I mean I do sort of feel like I mean this was always the way I've looked at comics that their communities as well you know like uh and I think I mentioned it in, in the issue like Brian K. Vaughn has that great line that new books yeah. new books don't have audiences they have families you know and that's kind of the way sort of I look at comics and I look at sort of these comics as well and you know I you know I think back it's like you know when I was reading James Robinson's Starman and he was just like listen I love the idea of a, of a letters page telling me how great I am, but also write in about all the old like knickknacks that you found and collectibles because that's also what this book is about. And so like, that's what it is. Like to me, hopefully, you know, 
I, I would like the best comics, the best pieces of media to me are more than just stories, they're experiences. And so I kind of want to like, I've created this space for myself and, and part of, you know, putting it out there is, is creating a space that we can kind of enjoy it together. And I do sort of see my stories and my comics as sort of conversations that are happening. And so, you know, I happen to have a couple pages in the book I need to fill. So let's like yeah, have that space be a place where like, you know, you can teach me something and I can like, cause I, you know, I'm one of those people that like, I learned a ton from comics. A lot of stuff, sadly too much of what I know came from comic, <laughs> comic books. So I, I, so to have that opportunity to, you know, to, to like, if, if there are people who, who are interested in, in that, like, I absolutely would love for them to have the, the opportunity to, to do that. I, I like to think that if you're reading a book like mine, you know, that you're, that you're not apathetic to that information because I'm not apathetic to that information. And so we are like minds. And so, so yes, yeah, so if there's other things that people have, I, you know, cause, cause there, I mean, so much of this book came from the fact that like, I did not know about the Chinese exclusion act for a very long period of time. You know, it was relatively recently in my life that I learned it and that realization was what led me to sort of create the book and write the book. And, you know, it, it, I mean, I didn't go to high school in America. I went to high school in Thailand, but, uh, but in none of the history books I had seen, had I ever heard, heard it. And, and I was embarrassed by that. And so I, you know, wanted to, you know, I created the book to sort of, you know, challenge, challenge all that sort of stuff that I, that I knew. Yeah. And that's the same reason Watchmen was created was yeah. because, um, trying to remember the creator's name, the guy from Lost. Uh, David um, Lindelof. Dave Lindelof literally read uh, uh, Tanaji Coates' uh, right. article and he, they mentioned the, the Tulsa Massacre, the, the, Black, the uh, Black Wall Street, and yeah. that inspired him to develop Watchmen. So it's kind yeah. of in the same vein. And also I learned everything I know from comics as well. Like I know what, <laughs> an, amp I know what an ampersand is because of Brian K. Vaughn. <laughs> right, right. That's I'm awesome. Just, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> my, mom mean, was my mom typed a lot, so I guess I knew that. Uh, there you go. <laughs> My, I don't think my parents ever typed anything. So, um, <laughs> so but, but, type on a typewriter, man. I did not. Man. I'm sorry. I'm young. So, but Bill it's a running I, joke on the podcast. I'm I'm the old guy. So, yes. got it. Got it. <laughs> but you know, Bill and I, as Bill mentioned, like we're we're huge noir fans. Like I, I went. I'm, I'm a film major. I took a film noir class at Rowan oh. University. Uh, what? Where what was like your first like foray into that genre? Like what got you kind of hooked that you would want to write you know a story on it or maybe a hopefully it, hopefully a couple stories about it? I, you know it, it it comes from a bunch of different places. I think like you know my um my editor on the book is also one of my best friends in comics, Will Dennis. He's a big crime guy and he's edited some of the best crime comics you know around Hundred Bullets, Scalping, two my two of my favorite books mm -hmm. and. He was the one who sort of uh, recommended my, my first sort of like noir, but he recommended my first Chandler novel and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of, you know, what got me, one of the things that got me down that path, but also like, you know, a big influence on the series is that, you know, uh, um, I, after sort of discovering the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Immigration Act of 1924 that banned the Asians and Arabs coming to the country, like, one of the things that kind of came to mind was, you know, growing up, I was, uh, I had a interest or a curiosity about those old, like there were, in the 1930s, there was a, a lot of Asian crime solvers movies, you know, Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto and Mr. Wong. And I watched them and I remember that and remember like, God, it's so interesting that there was a time where like Charlie Chan was like enormous and it was huge and there were movies all over the world, but it was a time when Asians couldn't come into the country it was a time where it got its most popular. And so, 
that particular, that specifically, you know, kind of got me in sort of into this book. And then, and I've always sort of said too, like a lot of times the books that I write, they're excuses to like, just get into like, you know, this was a great excuse to read like Chandler and Hammett and, you know, Lou Archer mysteries and easy Rollin mysteries and all that kind of stuff. So all of that kind of like, you know, all that stuff kind of, you know, it, it was a great, you know, it was just a great chance to do that. Like for me, the book, you know, is, is probably more inspired by those sort of detectives than sort of the movies per se. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, cause one of the things you realize when you read those books, is just like, oh, a prose novel really is the best format for these stories. Like yeah. so much of it lives in like conversations between characters or, you know, the 10 page chapter that's pure exposition about like what really happened and all that kind of stuff. So part of the challenge for this book and, and the thing that I love about writing about this book is like, all right, how do I, take the experience of reading like a continental op novel and like turn it and, and make the comic book version of that, that still felt, you know, that, that still felt loyal to that, but still kind of used sort of comics and that, and it was a weird thing where I almost, not to say there weren't a ton of like noir movies that had sort of influenced me, but I really got into this idea of like, what can I do as a comic to like honor those books and to like give you the experience of reading those books? Because I think like the film noir movies of the 40s, they're kind of a different aesthetic experience. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to, you know, go back to like the the, the, the gumshoe detective and and those were mostly in the, in the novels of the 30s and 30s and 40s. One thing you did that Al brought to my attention was mm -hmm. in book three, you changed the perspective of the narrative. Yeah. So yeah. I love that. Thank yeah, you. Totally Thank took you. me off guard, especially after you end episode. Uh, episode, episode because I just keep seeing yeah. this as a TV series. Me too. Yeah. I, I appreciate uh, it. Issue number two on that yeah. big like dun dun dun. I was like, yeah. oh! <laughs> I was like, you hooked me. And then you go to the, you switch the perspective of like son of a bitch. Ah! <laughs> Delaying the, the satisfaction of knowing what's going to happen. Such yeah. a classic noir trick. Um, <laughs> but it's like. Why make that decision to change the perspective of the of the the, uh, the point of view of the story? Which kind of oh, goes I, away from the normal, like when yeah. I'm, I'm I'm all film noir, so it's like yeah. it's one. It's usually yeah, yeah. you know it's Sam Spade it's, it's, or it's Humphrey Bogart. Bogart. It's yeah, you know, yeah. That's all you're getting. So it's it's interesting that you did that. Talk a little yeah. more about that. I, I think a lot of it for me was, you know, I'm a big fan, you know, of comics that kind of you know take takes chances and like experiments sort of with structure and form and all that kind of stuff. But I think on a pure story sort of level was, you know, Hark, Edison Hark sort of the protagonist is our eyes sort of into Chinatown. But at the same time, you know, Chinatown is by design is sort of a foreign place to him. And part of the story is him yeah. learning about it, learning his, his, uh, you know, his relationship with that community. But I kind of felt I wasn't doing the book and the concept justice without telling the stories of people who actually lived in Chinatown. And so, so for me, that's kind of what that character kind of represents sort of that van that vantage point. So that way you could kind of sort of see both, you know, and, and, and to me, they, they represent two things like Edison Hark as sort of a Chinese American detective. The question for him is just kind of like, he's an Asian with privilege and he's just like, what can I do to actually, you know, what that, I theoretically have privilege with this privilege. What can I do to actually help? Is there anything I can do to actually help? Is this just a rigged game? But I, you know, the thing that we get from sort of Lucy, who's kind of the, the focus of issue three, she kind of comes at it where like she doesn't have privilege. And so her 
main conflict is just getting through a day and like making sure dad's safe and like making enough money to sort of get by. And so it was important to kind of show like both aspects of, of, of that experience at the time. And as as a, a, I was going to say, as an aside, Edison Hark, like such a dope, such a great like <laughs> noir awesome. name. The town. <laughs> Thank grew, you. The town I grew up with was Edison, so I'm just like nice, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, um, Bill, I had to cut you off. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, but it's also interesting. I found that you're giving uh, a female character like that such a big part of the noir mm. because they're either the femme fatale, mm-hmm. yeah. or they're the gal Friday who is just there for exposition or to be put yeah. in peril. Like either one yeah. of those characters. But now you're making her just a central figure in this and giving her like she means a lot to the story like was that was that kind of like what you felt when you were reading these books there's like there is really the women in these stories really don't they, they're one of two things and that's it yeah i mean i'll be honest like when i first got into i got into noir pretty late and one of the reasons why i got into noir late was because i always had problems with the depiction of women in 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 them like you know it, it always kind of threw me and it got in my way of sort of enjoying enjoying the story and so i think you know part of the challenge of doing something like this where you're working on sort of a classic genre is you want to hit the notes but you don't want to sort of repeat the mistakes of the genre and so it's you know noir has been done a billion times in so many different mediums yeah yeah and so a lot of it was like there was you know and i don't know if i approached it from this perspective but there was no way i think to to make a noir that hit the notes of noir without falling into the traps of noir, without giving time for the, like giving space for the female female protagonist. And I say that having, you know, by the time you get to issue four, hopefully people, I will zig where I think people will think I zag in terms of all that sort of stuff. So, um, but even with that in mind, like, yeah, it it was just something that I wouldn't have felt right if it was just sort of the male sort of perspective on it, because I think it would just double down on kind of, you know, some of the traps that, that, that the genre fell into. Interesting. Yeah. Bill, you had a question about TV you wanted to, to discuss. Oh yeah. <laughs> I keep saying episode mostly because I don't read a lot of <laughs> comic books, but um, you've, you've mentioned you've written for TV. Obviously yeah. I'll t- talk to at the top. Talk about the difference but putting a story to paper and as putting a story to the screen. Like how different, because I know you did two sentence horror story. You did a couple episodes yeah, yep. of that. You did uh, an episode or two of Cloak and Dagger, which I mean, yep. and you could not get two very disparate things. One's on Freeform. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One's like recommended horror on Netflix. So I mean, <laughs> right, right. talk about how you're, um, you know, trying to get your head space. And I know you did some of your own short films that you wrote yeah. and directed yourself too. So it's like, how do you get your head like, how is that, like, that conversion kind of a... There was something, you know, I, so for a while, I was uh, an executive sort of at, at DC, uh, you know, the a, a, a TV executive at DC. And while I was there, DC stuff, I was part of this think tank to turn, like, DC, more DC comics into sort of other media. And so we, you know, in that time, one of the things I kind of realized is my, my day would dabble between comics and TV and sort of film. And one of the things I kind of realized is that if you look at all three, you know, people are, the temptation is like, oh, they're all cars and they can kind of all kind of get you to sort of different places, but they all kind of, you know, they, they, they all look the same from a distance. Mm-hmm. But when you pop the hood, they, the wiring is different and they run on different things. And so one of the things I found is that 
comics write run on concepts, you know, it's on conceptual, on conceptual thinking, you know, in a comic book, you know, and you see this in a Grant Morrison book, you see this in a Neil Gaiman book, there can be three huge ideas that you can build whole novels off of all in the span of one page. And part of the reason for that is like the reader controls time. You know, when you're reading a comic, you see a crazy idea and you're like, you give yourself a second just to think about that for a second. And then you kind of pr can proceed with the story. You don't have the option of doing that with, for film and, 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 you know, TV because, you know, you have no control over the time. So as a result, conceptual thinking, a, you can make a perfectly decent, might not be great, but you can make a perfectly decent comic if you string conceptual ideas together and they just connect them sort of with, with the narrative. And it might not be the best comic in the world, but you can make a comic book sort of that way. You know, television runs on emotion and it's their big emotional beats. And so you can make an episode of TV stringing emotional beats together and nothing else. Not the greatest episode of television, but you can right. kind of do that. Uh, film, at least... Warner Brothers Films, which was the place that owns DC where I worked, uh, spectacle, those films run on spectacle. And so like, you know, big moments of spectacle, you can string them, to get, string them all together, you can get a movie. Not the best movie, but you can kind of get a movie. And so for me, it was like this idea of knowing like which each, you know, each medium runs on different things. And so figuring that, so like, you know, if I'm writing a comic, you know, if I'm looking for an emotional beat, I... I construct a page with that emotional beat in mind. Because one of the things I find that um, TV writers, when they come to comics, they take for granted is they're so used to having actors and score deliver an emotional beat that they will write an emotional beat on a panel. And as a reader, I will completely overlook it. And so, yeah. you know, oh, so wow. one of the things in comics, what I do is if I want there to be emotional beat, I design my entire page around that emotional beat because comics is not a place that naturally will deliver sort of emotion. You have to construct it to communicate emotion. And you do that very um, well in this in this, thank you. In this series. There's thank a you. one thank shot that I, the one shot, Jesus, Bill, it's not <laughs> There's a one picture of when they're in the nightclub and it's like in the center mm. panel. Yeah, it yeah. Pops out. It's just like one. I love okay, the it's art. called a splash page, Bill. <laughs> splash page. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, Dad. I got you. Um, it's <laughs> just uh, it, the way that just jumps out. You, you feel that emotion right there. You're like you're you're swept up right into it. So mm -hmm. I get I I'm like seeing different pages of your book while you're we we're talking about it. So like yeah, that's, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, yeah. And, was, and, and simply, okay. simply in in television, you know, television doesn't is not you know doesn't television doesn't do conceptual thinking very well. And so if you're going to introduce a concept in television, you have to devote a scene and you have to construct a scene around you know explaining that concept and like, you know, making sure that it ties into the emotional aspects of the characters so that the audience can kind of get that concept. And it's just a, an idea of like what certain, you know, what what certain mediums do better than others. So as a result, comics, you can really load com comics up with ideas because comics in a sense is a colder medium. And so like, you know, like I love Alan Moore stuff. Alan Moore has done books that I would consider cold that I love that, you, you know, From Hell is a cold book, but it's a great and a fantastic fantastic book but so and that i think that's a little bit of the difference between between the two the, the two mediums it's like you know television at least runs on emotion and then in that emotion in those emotional stories you you slide conceptual stuff in there to sort of help that along whereas comics runs on on concepts and then you kind of find places for emotion to 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 to, 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 to kind of help that along i was going to say um because we mentioned the splash page that i also mm. that that also hit me pretty hard too when i saw it um good time to shout out the, the rest of the creative team, especially yeah. the artists that is involved yeah. in the good Asian. 
Yeah, no, I have this like wonderful sort of art art team. Um, uh, Alex Tefengi is sort of my artist. Uh, Alexander Tefengi is uh, is my artist. He did. He's a European. He he does a lot of European uh, Van Destine sort of French sort of comics. But his first uh, uh, book in America was um, Outpost Zero, written by Sean uh, Sean McKeever, published by Skybound, and. Uh, and Alex is just fantastic. And, you know, and you've seen the, you've seen the art now. And so like the thing that Alex does that just blows me away is that he has this amazing ability to have his characters kind of convey two emotions at once. And which in a noir where it's all about conflict and inner conflict, it's like so integral. And it, he continually blows me away with sort of how he does that because he's not, they're different artists like, you know, like Aaron, who I worked with on, on Infidel, he's a guy who uses photo ref. And, and not, you know, both of the, both techniques sort of blow my mind, but I can wrap my head around how, okay, if I'm talking, if I'm watching an actor and the actor conveys an emotion this way, I understand in my non-artist brain, how you, you know, the process of like, okay, so you take that and you put that into art. And I, I, and that, you know, what I just sort of said does not do the kind of magic that Aaron does justice because he is a magician sort of on the page and does all this sort of a crazy stuff. But the thing that blows me away about Alex is he's able to do that exact same thing, but he's not watching people do it. It's just all kind of in his brain. And he knows, you know, how to have a person convey two different emotions through just their eyes, you know? And so like, I can't imagine anyone else sort of doing this book besides Alex. And then, um, before you get Below into before, color. Yeah, before go ahead. you get into that, I just had one question. There's there's this one style choice that's used throughout the first three episodes but <laughs> issues. Uh, you should let's have a drinking game. Everybody. Every time Bill says <laughs> episodes instead of issues, end up in a hospital. Um, a red a red square is like focused on certain yeah. things from Edison. Was that something you came up with, or is that something that Alex came up with? That was something I came up with, but it was a conversation on like the you know the the best way to sort of you know actualize it on the comics page. And a lot of that was, you know, while there are detectives sort of in comics, obviously Batman being the, the most, you know, uh, the, the most famous of them. One of the things I kind of realized is you see a lot of television and movies use a lot of cinema tricks to kind of get you in the mind of the detective. And you see a lot less of that in comics. And so there was a, a excitement for both me and Alex to like, what can, how can we use the grammar of comics to kind of do the kind of same thing? And so that's what, you know, one of the things when I talk about like, how do we get the experience of reading the books and put them in the comics? That, those were one of the things that, you know, one of the sort of the, the, the ways we tried, to, we tried to do that. It was reminiscent of like Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Like in the sense of like, oh, we're going to yeah. slow it down and do like the voiceover narration. Yeah. That was kind of, I, I, when I was reading it and seeing that, I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to convey that. Cause it, yeah, it was very like, Batman-esque. Yeah, and, and, and it goes, in one of the things my editor room kind of reminds me too, is like, it goes back to the to the, the roots of comics. Like you can see techniques like that in old, in old Dick Tracy comics where like he's on his like little wristwatch and there's like a little pop-up pop-up panel about what he's, look, what he's looking at and all that. Yeah, the art all right, definitely, did we, the art definitely I don't want to say, was... I'm sorry, I just wanted, to, and we can cut this out. I just want, I said, uh, I wanted him to continue to well, talk about the colorist. <laughs> To, to talk about the colorist on the book. Because that's um, what we're going into where we cut you off. Yeah. So uh, the colorist is Lee Lowridge. And mm -hmm. and Lee is, uh, I mean, Lee has been around forever. He's, I think, 
if anyone, to me, one of his best works is sort of like Deadly Class. And he set like this very distinct color style for Deadly Class. And then I think he went off to do other projects and I think he's coming back now to sort of do the, to do the book. But um, he, and at least like one of my oldest friends in, in comics, but uh, you know, me and Will presented Alex with a bunch of different colorists. And Alex instantly zeroed in on Lee at just like how bold and how stylistic his choices were. And it's so funny because like Alex can actually, Alex is such a great artist that he can actually be difficult to color. And one of the reasons why is his art is so complete. You'll see certain artists who like their work is so complete in black and white and colorist doesn't actually know what to do. Like, you know, it's like got all the information you need that if you add more information, it almost makes it garish or it makes it busy. So Alex is one of those artists. His stuff is so complete in black and white. It, it doesn't all necessarily leave a lot of room for a colorist to kind of do something, but Lee is so good at what he does. And so there's so much atmosphere that he, 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 he imbues the page with his color choices. And, and it's, and the other thing I love about that too, not only is that, but they're all non-obvious um, color choices for a noir. The book is, even though it's a noir, it's bright. And yet it still yeah. feels oppressive the way you want noir to feel. And that's like one of the things I love, you know, there's a page in that first issue that's in like hot pink, which I never thought in a million years you would see in a noir book, but it is so perfect on that page, you know, and those are the kind of like brilliant calls that he'll, that he'll make. And like Jeff Powell, my designer from uh, designer and letterer from, from Infidel and Jeff like puts in like 110%. Like one of the things the, a treat, hopefully, for anyone who's sort of seen the preview PDFs is that the book actually has like more design pages than the, the PDFs do, primarily because I'm bad at math and I got the math all wrong and like I had extra pages. And so, um, but we had this like awesome sort of uh, design spread, this title spread sort of in the book that we've added now. And in that, Jeff has like this like foil trim that he's kind of puts all around there, kind of like in the, the classic where you see them in sort of silent movies. He's got like that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but one of the things that he does though is that in that foil trim, that's actually a maze with like a distinct in point and an out point that he like wow. designs. Like it's so cool. And it's all like completely unnecessary, but like the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and like, he'll just like, he'll, he, but he'll add that extra. Cause he just like him, like me, like all of us, they, he just wants to make things that are nice and pretty and, and like, and are special. And so, you know, and then we have like Dave Johnson, who's like my favorite cover artist, like working on this book, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, the, like his covers on 100 Bullets are like the bar that I set like all comic book covers to, you know, they're distinctive, but they're, they're clever. There's enough going on that like you, it strikes your eye from across the room, you lean in, but then like once you're looking at it, you're looking at the actual image because there's so much happening and so much clever stuff happening in, on, on there. So, um, so yeah, so that I just, the fact that he's actually like, you know, returns my emails and like is giving us covers is like amazing to me. And then we've got this like, you know, these wonderful sort of variant artists doing, you know, we've got Sana Takeda and Annie Wu and Jen Bartel who've done the first three and just the fact that they've given their time is just, just amazing. Both Takeda and Bartel are like top yeah. of their game right now totally. with, with between totally. monsters. I mean, Jen Bartel's variant covers for Marvel. Oh, oh my are, God. Yeah. That whole month that she's done. It's, oh my it's awesome. God. It's Insane. And I love that you brought up the, um, like the, the bombastic bright colors, because when I was reading it again today, um, yeah. and again, my, my noir background is film. I had just watched Chinatown recently. Oh, nice. Kind of the, one of the last like traditional noir films, like outside yeah. of, you know, neo-noir, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was like, that was what I was 
reminiscent of. I'm like, this is so, this is modern colors in a 30s, 40s noir book. And I was just like, this is not what I expected at all, but I'm so glad that I'm reading it. I actually <laughs> Thank didn't you. pick up on that until after, like, thinking about it. I'm just like, none of that had heavy shadow. None yeah. of that was, mm-hmm. like, crazy, like, just, like, things are backlit and you see stuff. Like, yeah. like, that was just a very colorful book that felt, like, seamless within the genre. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's kind of amazing, I think, that, that, it, that it works. I think part of the reason for that is... And it's, it's the, uh, you know, it, it's certainly where my and Alex's headspace are. It's the book for us, there is this war between sort of cynicism and optimism that's kind of, kind of in it. And like, you know, Alex is more of the optimist in us and I'm like a little bit more of the cynic. And, but the, the optimism in Alex's art, I feel like you can see it and it gives the space for that colors to kind of live. And it, but I think it's one of the reasons why you can do these bright colors but still have it faithful to the story and, and sort of faithful to the genre because a part of the story is about this collision between like dark and light and, and bright and, and bright and dim. Um, and so it, it, you know, one of those things that was certainly like, we didn't sit down and talk about it, but it like, it worked out very well. And I think it is because we're, we're so uh, sort of on the same page in terms of like what the book is and what the book wants to do. Excellent. I, I feel like I've been talking a lot lately. So Bill, I was going to throw it to you. I was like, I'm looking at some of our questions. I'm like, I feel like I've asked this already. <laughs> um, but so one of the things we talked, uh, one of the things you mentioned in that, I, I, I re- refer back to that notes, uh, that note section you had at the end, because I just love mm-hmm. reading so much about it. It's just like, you really dove into a lot of history. Like Angel Island, for example, yeah. was like this piece of history that I'm just like, never heard of it before. Yeah. Um, how do you feel that, um, and I want to pull up your exact quote because I really loved it. Um, uh, a, a pulp, you know, this is a pulp mystery set amongst, amidst a forgotten America. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I just love that sentence alone. I'm just like, this, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a sentence I should hang in my, my house. <laughs> so good. Uh, my wife would be like, why is this in the kitchen? <laughs> uh, but how do you think that helped? the story because like i said again you're in a very over some would say tired at times genre that everyone's done Hmm. but adding this new element of realism in a forgotten history how did that help you create the world of this story for or did the or was this this forgotten history the the noir was just like your vessel to convey the story about forgotten history. I, I, I think I, I think it was. I think the noir was sort of a vessel to kind of you know. I, I, a lot of it for me is, you know, there's certain topics that I want to talk about that I'm interested in that I you know, and probably the way my brain works is, you know, oh here are some genres that that are conducive to sort of talking about it. Like you know, for infidel, you know. Infidel, in Infidel, our protagonist is being haunted by ghosts, by racist ghosts that no one else is seeing. And so there is a allegory there for gaslighting. And so, and, and, but that, it, it lined up so perfectly with a haunted house story. So that, that was a way to kind of talk about both. And so like so much of noir, whether it's like the, the burnt out detective or, you know, the, the moral code, the, the dark moral code, like it lined up so much with, with the themes that were already part of the topic of, you know, immigration and immigrants and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, 
it lined them up like so a lot of it for me was it wasn't just hey i want to do a new spin on uh, on noir it was more this is something i'm interested in this is something else i'm interested in and sort of that collision kind of made the excitement to kind of do it like i i don't know if i could have uh I, I don't, at least I don't approach sort of stories in, in that way of how can I do a different spin on this genre? It's just not how I, how I look at it. A lot of times it's, you know, the genre is one of the, one of the options, it's one of the, it's on the menu and there's these things that I want to talk about. And it's like, ooh, how can I put you know, these, you know, let's put these things together and see Like you were works. saying, comic books are, you could string a whole bunch of concepts together. Yeah. 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 Learning. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I'm <laughs> you got it. You got Learning it. about comics. <laughs> All right, but before we let you go, I want to ask a couple like lightning round okay. style questions. Okay, so we'll I start. don't have to answer these, right? You do not. <laughs> you don't have to answer these. Probably it's literally not. just for the guest. Probably. Okay, so first one is what is the comic book that you recommend to a non-comic book reader to help them get into comics? Oh God, oh that is a good question. That is a really good question. I I have two answers. Great. One. Uh, Stray Bullets by Dave Lapham. It's like, I cannot go anything without recommending it because it's such like a fantastic book that I feel like everyone continually sleeps on. Okay. I I've feel... slept on it, so I have to read that now. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so to read it. I feel like if you're gonna... I've always said that Why the Last Man by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra is kind of like the... You guys are best the... friends, man. Yeah, I I, I kind of feel like it's the it's the miseducation of Lauren Hill of like comics. Like I feel like if wow. you, if you're gonna introduce hip hop to someone, you give them that Lauren Hill album and they're like, oh, I like hip hop kind of thing, and I'll get into hip hop. I feel like Why the Last Man is that for comics. It's just like it, it is a great entry into the sort of world of world of comics. It is. I mean, I could just again, as Bill said, <laughs> we're best friends now. That's my my favorite that, that, series. Hey, listen, that that show got a little push on uh, the Hulu ad during the Oscars the other night. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Development hell is the uh, yeah. why the last man is the definition of development. Hell. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I guess it's on a it's on a big trailer, so it's got to be coming. I'm so excited! Yeah. I can't wait. I, I, I that is a top three recommendation book for me. I think it's still like mm. it's a little high concept. I, I well, then again, my go to is Sex Criminals usually. Oh wow, wow! That's because, a, that's a that's a that. That's a that's a that's a polarizing choice. I feel. I feel, I, like. I feel like that it's like it's so outrageous that it almost mm. like can't work as another adaptation, or they won't mm. be able to get everything that they put into that series in terms of like relationships and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I feel like it's so nuanced at times that it's just going to be so hard to adapt it. I yeah, think they I, I think that. they can if done right, and you know Matt and you know Chip are actually involved in it, but that book is just so well done. Um, yeah. I, so concise. Oh yeah, but sorry, this is supposed to be lightning round. All right, for the guest. Next, next, <laughs> next, next lightning round question. Okay, uh, the good Asian gets an adaptation, but you get to choose whether it's a series or a movie. What's your choice? Oh, I would definitely do a TV series over a movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like, especially with crime sort of stuff, like movies have a tendency because they're only two hours. You all you can it, it boils everything down to its plot. And I think this book is so much about the world and the characters. So I think you need a, a television show to kind of do it justice. I, I will probably change all that depending on the size of the check people like bring down my way. But like that, as of right now, that, that, that's where I- Have you already I, cast it in your brain? No, only because like, I don't know, I don't know who, what Chinese American lead is uh, 
I, I don't know who the Chinese American lead is that 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 they can pull it off. I mean, maybe after Shang Chi, maybe Sima Liu is 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 that guy. But um, but but yeah, maybe. Um, okay, going back to comics, lightning round question: What was the comic that got you into comics? I think my first comic was Amazing Spider-Man number two thirty, the second part of Nothing Stops the Juggernaut. Uh, it was written by Roger Stern and drawn by John Romita Jr. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, Spidey's Spidey's a go-to. That's yeah. I name I named my son Parker. So I'm a huge nice, fan. nice. Yes. Um, Bill, you have any lightning rounds? I can I can keep throwing them, but dude, if no, you want, just you. Like, all right, all right. It's fine. It's <laughs> oh, fine. Well, okay. okay. I'll throw just a, a yes or no question. Well, maybe with a little complication. Did you collect comic book cards? And what was your favorite one? Oh, because so I, I, I kind of collected. The Marvel had uh, their Marvel Masterworks series, yep. and they and with that Joe Jesco did, did the art for. And I love those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other comic book art, the other comic book cards, I didn't really get into because I was like, oh, this feels like the stuff I can find in the comics, just in card format. But like the Marvel Masterworks with Joe Jesco, like like he wasn't doing any art for any interiors, so. Those that, that series of cards were kind of a revelation. I don't know if I have a particular card that like sort of stands out. Although my the first Just Go card I probably saw was the Hulk card. And that was probably the one that made me be like, oh, I need to get all of this. All right. And then last one, we'll go, we'll, we'll throw it back to TV. What's the um, dream television show for you to write on? I mean, there's a dream show for me to write on that I would be any good at like okay so there's a show that i like the job i would love to have and the job i would love to have is i would have loved to like be in the room when sorkin was writing westway like that i would love that i wouldn't been able to offer anything particularly useful <laughs> but i would love to have like... been there. yeah like i mean maybe i could get like coffee occasionally but like that might be like the extent of like what i could offer to that room the show that I will, uh, the dream job that I might have actually been kind of useful for, I, I, because most of the time I, I can't think of one, but I've settled on, uh, on Battlestar Galactica, like the nice. Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica. I think I would have loved to have been there. And I think I might've had some, some use, but it might've been some use. Of that really I, I would have liked to seen you on like Castle Rock, like most recently. Oh yeah. That would have been fun. I think you could have crushed that. I didn't get through most of season two. Uh, season one was good. I, didn't start it. Season one was fun. It was very mystery. I don't know. Finale two, at times was a little. <laughs> I don't want to shit on Castle Rock. This no, not, it was good, but this is not the time fin- nor the place. <laughs> there are parts of that finale you're just like, all right, all right, all right. That was a choice. Listen, man, it's tough to stick the landing. I mean, I don't know if you have anything to say about just finales in general, but I feel like it's tough finales. to. Finales are tough. Finales are yeah. tough. I'm trying to think. Like, there's so few finales that because I feel like. It's it's so hard to find a fin- like sometimes you get a finale that just is the logical conclusion of the show and but then as a viewer you feel a little disappointed that like you didn't get like an extra jolt but then the shows that give you the extra jolt then that's the one that the finale usually kind of goes awry so they're so tough they're so very tough. true uh, well again we don't want to waste any more of your time but uh, we usually end the show with just plugs and you have something pretty awesome to plug right now so where can people find you on social media because i know me and you talk on on the twitters but let people know where they can find you and uh what you're promoting at the moment yeah so um on twitter i'm real underscore porn sack on twitter i'm real underscore psack because i found out you can't have the title the syllable porn in your in your instagram <laughs> handle and so um 
And uh, and as for what I'm promoting uh, next Wednesday, so what is it in in nine days time, eight days time, uh, the first issue of the Good Asian uh, hits comic book stands. And so what now? What day is that? Because this isn't Wednesday. Might hit that ne- that might not hit nine. Oh, days oh that's right. Day. That's that's true. That's true. So May fifth. So right. May fifth. So this may or may not come out. I guess uh, before or after May May fifth. Yeah, and then you can find that at your local comic book shop, or if you don't know where that is, I believe you can probably find it on like Comicsology, maybe yep. or Comicsology. Yeah. You can find it digitally on Comicsology. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on an episode of Socially Distance. It was great to catch up and yeah. you know, talk to you, kind of face to face, but not really. Uh, you yeah, know, Comic Con. You know, yeah, this is now. this is a ton of fun. So I awesome. thank you for having me. I yeah, absolutely. Um, well. For Al Manorino, for Bill Bodkin, uh, thank you for listening to the Socially Distant Podcast. We will be back next week with another different sort of episode because we don't know <laughs> what yeah, we're doing at we'll this be point. Back. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening. Have a great one.